You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In the new film, Everything's Gone Green, a 20-something slacker finds himself trapped in a world of accidental success where it's hard to tell what's real from what's fabrication. With us today is the film's director, Paul Fox, whose first feature-length film, the psychological thriller The Dark Hours, won Best Feature at the New York City Horror Film Festival. Paul Fox, welcome to Film School. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How did this project begin, Everything's Gone Green? What's the genesis? Well, the author is Douglas Copeland, who I don't know how well known he is to your listeners, but he's... Oh, very well. He's very well. Uh Um, Certainly in Canada, he's a bit of a a national institution and, you know, best known, of course, for Generation X, for his novel Generation X. And he's written about 10 books by now. And the producer of this film just started cold calling different artists, people who were well known in other mediums, from sculptors to musicians and painters, and just asking if they'd ever tried their hand at writing a screenplay. It was a unique way to go out and try and find material. Many of them had, including Doug. So we took a look at Doug's screenplay, and it it was just the one that had the most promise as a movie and also felt like sort of an extension of his literary work. You know, it just you read it, and it felt like a movie version of a Copeland novel. So it sort of made the f- most sense to go ahead and uh, turn that one into a movie. E writes in Canada. Was there any doubt that it was going to be filmed in Vancouver? No, never. I mean... Anyone who reads Doug's books knows he's a, you know, a real Vancouver booster. He lives uh-huh. there. He writes about it. He writes about sort of the culture as filtered through Vancouver specifically. And it's a Canadian movie. I'm, I mean, I'm from Toronto, but we, you know, we went out and shot it in Vancouver. Yeah, no, there was never a question of sort of transplanting it to Seattle or yeah. something like that. <laughs> well, that, that would have been, been strange given that uh, so many uh, part of the film itself mentions how many films are shot up in Vancouver. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of one of our running running themes in the film is that uh, the character that Steph Song plays is a set designer whose job it is to actually constantly disguise Vancouver as various American cities for sort of bad cable service productions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she's always, her job is always to put Seattle mailboxes on the corner and to uh, spot USA Today uh, <laughs> newspaper boxes, newspapers <laughs> yeah. around, yeah. Did you do much talking with uh, Douglas Copeland about what it was he wanted to, at the core project here in the film? Not much. You know, he was really sort of interested in sort of handing it off to the filmmakers and sort of seeing how we interpreted it in a way. I mean, I certainly did in prep talk to him quite a bit about sort of specific things, but a lot of it was me sort of revisiting the books, reading the script, looking at a lot of his visual artwork, because he's also, you know, he's also a photographer and a sculptor, and Uh trying to find my own take on how, because it's actually the first, despite the fact that he's written all these books over the years, none of them have been made into movies so it was sort of a, a bit of a challenge, and it was the first sort of crack at trying to make a filmic equivalent of a Copeland world. So uh, it was a lot of fun that way, just sort of, so sort of immersing myself in his works and trying to figure out what that, what that would look like and sound like in a, in a movie. During prep, we spent, I mean, we're in sort of opposite sides of the country, me in Toronto and him in Vancouver, so we spent a lot of time sort of emailing sort of back and forth, you know, questions and concerns, and sort of when we were sort of working on fine-tuning the script, and then... When we got out to Vancouver, uh, you know, as I say, he was really, he, he would come to set, but he was really interested in just watching the process. And mm-hmm. 
he sort of I keep saying he was kind of like the benevolent uncle of the film. You know, he'd show up with gifts for the crew and kind of wander around and with a big smile on his face and sit behind the monitor with a head with headphones on and just be smiling. And so I just felt that was his kind of his stamp of approval yeah. was that he just kind of enjoyed seeing the process. I have a feeling that if it had been going really wrong and sort of away from what he saw, he might have sort of stepped forward. But he kept saying that it was sort of shaking his head and sort of bemused and saying, "Wow, it's like." stepping into my own brain. So I think he was happy. He loved all the casting. He loved what we were doing visually. So, you know, it might have been different if he'd kind of come to set and we were doing something completely contrary to his vision. But I think he was just really pleased to see it unfolding the way he he had envisioned. Now, Paolo Costanza, mm-hmm. Costanza sorry about that, plays, Costanza, yeah. plays the lead uh, Ryan. Yeah. The, the man kind of come unstuck in Vancouver, trying to make a way, but uh, getting lost in a world of... Uh, Scandal, I think you'd call it. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, any Copeland in that character? Oh, you mean is there Doug himself in yeah. that character? Oh, yeah, I think lots. And I think, uh, you know, when you speak to Doug, particularly about his 20s, and uh, which he claims are, the, you know, the worst, <laughs> the worst period yeah. of your, your life, you know, he, Doug will always say that your 20s suck. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think there's, I definitely think it's a kind of a, a bit of a reflection of Doug's it's as he said. It's sort of like that trying to find, you know, it's that time where you're trying to find your own path, and you're sort of realizing as you approach thirty that there's sort of certain doors are closing on you, and you'd better figure out what you're doing before it's too late and before those doors close permanently. So there's that level of of panic to it all as you see your friends and friends moving on and finding success and getting married and getting great jobs and buying cool toys. And if you're not keeping up, that there's that sort of level of dread that sets in. I think, and that. Uh, which is kind of where we find Ryan in this movie. You know, he's in that sort of, he's been sort of coasting as a slacker for his 20s, and as he approaches 30s, he realizes everybody else has kind of moved on and left him alone, and he'd better do something and do it fast. What I find interesting is is that while this is uh, Douglas Copeland's first screenplay, the first time he's really had a chance to put his stamp on a character, this kind of a character has really permeated much uh, a lot of uh, films over the last 10 to 15 years. You've seen the character of Ryan uh, in, in a lot of the, I think of the Linklater um, films, that's the sort of character. I imagine for him and for you, the opportunity to put your stamp on this, on your take on the 20s uh, was a, an opportunity you're really looking forward to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do with this character particularly is take that character that you're describing that we've seen in the Linklater films and put, sort of push him forward a few years just to that point where he's yeah. Sort of saying, enough is enough. Now what do I do? You know, I don't want to be this guy anymore. Right. Or I'm realizing that this is kind of a loser position to be. If I, You know, you can't be that guy in your 30s. It's okay in your 20s. Yeah. So it's like he's sort of now perched on how do I move forward. That was kind of the idea there was to take that character and then let's take him to the next level. And Where do you go from there? We're speaking with Paul Fox, the director of Everything's Gone Green. You had a question? Oh, I just wanted to follow that up because we're talking about the primary character of Ryan. But a film like this is really rises or falls on, on the roles, on the supporting roles. Mm-hmm. And you've got some terrific people. The, his family, Ryan's family, I think the, they're relatively small parts, but they're memorable. So casting is a really important part of this film. And were you involved in the casting of the film? Oh, absolutely. As the director, you are doing the casting. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I think, sort of almost one of the most important roles as a, as a director is making sure that you have the right people in the right places, finding the right the right fits. And uh, it's where you can go very right or very wrong. So, yeah, we had a great time casting. And I mean, Paulo in particular, I'm just really happy with in the movie. Because I'd seen him in all these films like Road Trip and 40 Days and 40 Nights and 
Joey, the TV series. And, but he's always somebody's roommate or somebody's best friend, and he's never the lead guy. And yet I always found him like the most engaging guy on the screen, usually. I'm all, my eye always goes to him because there's an interesting energy to him and a thoughtfulness to him. And so he just seemed absolutely the right guy for this guy. And then all the rest, all those supporting characters, yeah, it's, there's that sort of that, they're all from the sort of Vancouver pool of, of regular actors. And I tried in a lot of places to use actors in roles that they hadn't done before, like Tom Butler, who plays Ryan's father. You know, he usually plays these kind of stolid military men on shows like Stargate and things like that, or cops. And when you give him the actors a chance to do something a little different, like, <laughs> hey, play this kind of goofball yeah, dad, yeah. he really rose to it. You know, and mm-hmm. same with the Aiden Devine, who plays Ryan's boss, Alan. Um, Aiden played the psychopath in my first film, The Dark Hours, which is not a humorous characterization at all. Mm-hmm. It's a very scary guy. And, uh, you know, again, I just got to know Aiden in the course of making that movie and knew that he had this kind of real goofball streak to him. And it's like, let's put that in a movie. And I think actors just, when they're given something, they're so used to being sort of pigeonholed, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. when you can give them something to work with that's a little different, they really rise to it and have fun with it. And I think you really see that with all these small characters in this movie. In shooting this in Vancouver, how, how much time did you spend there? <laughs> We were only in Vancouver, you know, maybe we had two or three weeks of prep and then sort of launched right into shooting, and we had a very short shooting schedule. We were there, we shot for 19 days, mm-hmm. which uh, when you see the movie, it's a very locations-heavy movie. We're yes. all over the city and outside the city and out on the water and up on top of a mountain and up the highway, and uh, so it's one of those shoots where you're literally careening around the city in equipment vans and leaping out and setting up tripods and leaping back into the van and <laughs> driving off. and doing that four or five times a day. It's, uh, well, in many ways, the uh, Vancouver is the second lead in this film. It really is, plays a prominent part of the film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I always wanted to use it as, you know, this is a film about Ryan trying to sort of figure out his identity or define his identity. So by using Vancouver struggling to come out from beneath being this Hollywood backlot, being disguised as all these various American cities for American movies, it was nice to sort of have the city having its own little mini identity struggle alongside of, of Ryan's. And so even just in the approach to shooting the movie, sort of always made sure that the environments were part of the frames. You know, didn't shoot. It's not a wall-to-wall close-ups movie. It's, mm-hmm. There's a lot of wide shots and a lot of shots where the characters are really interacting with the environment so that we keep Vancouver always present as a character, as you said. We're speaking with Paul Fox, as the uh, director of Everything's Gone Green. You're a Canadian, mm-hmm. come out of the Canadian uh, film community. Are we going to see more Canadian films in the future? And, and what's the sort of the state of ca- Canadian um, uh, cinema? Well, I mean, it's, it's tricky. I mean, as to whether you'll see m- more in the future, it's hard to know. We keep making them. Okay. You know, the, the, uh, but, you know, it's hard making films anywhere. And then the, the big challenge is then getting them out, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. for, as an independent film, this isn't sort of an independent film that has a sort of a, a studio umbrella behind it giving it sort of, you know, a real P&A push. It's, uh, it's a real independent movie, and we, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's been a sort of a real grassrootsy sort of promotional, promotional push, which is, it's, you know, really important for people to get out and see it, just because it's... It's, a, it's kind of movie, when you're talking about an independent film, these are the kind of movies that I'm talking about. Smaller films that talk about people, relationships. These are the kind of films you want to encourage to, to have more of. Well, I hope so. I mean, yeah. I, and the, but the, and, the, and it's tricky, you know. And um, we make the movie, and and we're very proud of it. And when yeah. we get people in to see it, they people seem to really like it. But yeah, yeah the trick—it's just—it's getting people out to see it. So uh, yeah, so, if I could put my my uh, promotional hat on for a second, it would be just to 
say to people to go out and see it and try and see it this week because it's all about the numbers. It's all about the opening week, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does ultimately come down to that. You know, you put a lot of work and you know a few years of time when you think of developing a movie and and then shooting it and cutting it and uh, and then it all sort of seems to come down to a weekend or two where you just kind of cross your fingers and put it out there like a a toddler and see if it walks. The soundtrack to this was very fine. I, I really enjoyed it. I like the fact too that you kept it Canadian. There's some some great groups that all often go unnoticed down here, and it's uh, it's it really it really sets off the film nicely. Well, the editor of the film, uh, Gareth Scales, when we were cutting, he was actually 29 when we were editing it. He was the same age as Ryan in the movie, and I didn't want to go with a, a composed score. Um, and my sort of objective was to only use music that the character of Ryan might listen to. So uh, Gareth actually proved to be this incredible resource, and because uh, he's really sort of plugged into that whole Canadian indie rock thing, so that's kind of how we approached it. And we also only put in songs that we thought we could eventually afford, because there's nothing worse than temping in a song that you know that you fall in love with, and it works perfectly for your scene, and then you find that it's out of your price range. Well, that reminds me. That's something we've heard quite often from uh, filmmakers: is is that the it's a prohibitively expensive thing to do. There must be a sliding scale here, is that right? You you found music that wasn't as expensive. Exactly, and I think what we did because it's all Canadian sort of indie bands that are just slightly under the radar. I think Sloan is probably the most the best known of the bands in the on the track. But and I I could be wrong, but I think that then they sort of worked out a favored nations contract where every band agreed to get the same ridiculously low um, <laughs> fee for their song. But the great thing is that it's actually been the very first Canadian soundtrack to be picked up for CD release by Lakeshore Records in the States. So um, it was cool over at Sunset 5 to be able to sort of walk into the Virgin Megastore and see the CD for sale as well. Well, that's terrific. Uh, We had uh, Ryan Fleck on and talked about Half Nelson and how... Broken social scene. Broken social scene, I mean, he was in love with the music, and they were very cooperative, but then when it came to the suits, he really ran into some... Serious cost. Uh, cost. Well, it's tricky. I mean, one of the artists on our is Jason Collette, uh, mm-hmm. who has two songs in our movie, is right. actually one of the uh, right. Broken Social Scene members. It's a side project of his, his solo project. So, again, I think we had actually had initial conversations with the BSS guys, and I think you're like sort of bumped heads again with the, the, the higher-ups, which was sort of a quick lesson that we then started kind of being a little more creative and went to people like Jason, who, although a Broken Social Scene member, yeah was doing his own thing and was going to be a little bit more collaborative. What you're really highlighting here is is that you wear so many hats here. You're not only the director and you're involved in the casting and all the rest of it, of course, uh, but you really have to become kind of a music executive in a sense when you're when you're putting some a project and like a, this. And a budget analyst. And a budget <laughs> analyst. Oh, so. yeah, you do. And you, yes, and in, and in the making of the film, you become a location scout, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you really have to kind of get out there. And yes, you have somebody working with you on locations, but... You have to be sort of really think out the bo- outside of the box all the time. So it's, mm-hmm. as a director, it really sort of behooves you to get involved and get your feet wet in all these various capacities just to make sure that you get what you need. Well, it only it has got to serve you well in the future. When you're, when you're directing uh, Mission Impossible 6 That's right. and everybody else in the world is doing all these things, uh, I'm sure you're going to miss I, I miss, hope you don't do Mission Impossible <laughs> 6. I, I really enjoyed this film. I and really I, interesting I, Mission Impossible <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting well, version yeah. of Mission Impossible 6. It's a terrific film. Um, Absolutely. And, and if you do it, be sure and have Paula Costanzo in the, yeah. uh, in the role. Uh, as the Ethan. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, Paul. You. Yeah, and uh, the film is Everything's Gone Green, and the director is Paul Fox. Yeah, actually, if you go to www.everythingsgonegreen.com, you can find out uh, where, where the... That's, that's a things. nice site, too. Yeah, we by have, the way. We've linked up to it. It's a real fine site, so whoever's doing that is, is uh, doing a fine job also.
That's all through, I think, First Independent Pictures, right. our distributor here. Excellent. Well, terrific. Well, thank you for joining us here on Film School. Thank you very much. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at kuci.org slash filmschool.